Hello, hello everyone. This is Dr. Eeks or Dr. Aaron Stare. I respond to both, like I always say. Um, and it's another episode of Causes or Cures. Um, forgive me, my throat is a little bit scratchy today, um, but I think the show can go on. Um, hopefully, hopefully it's not COVID. Uh, uh, what, you know, like I told my panicked friend at the beginning of the pandemic, whenever he got a symptom, you know, an upper respiratory symptom, I always said, you know, other things are, are going on still. Like they didn't, like not, like the common cold didn't go on a vacation, right? Um, anyhow, speaking of COVID, today we are going to chat about COVID long haulers or these symptoms, these long haul symptoms that seem to last for a long time um, after somebody recovers from a COVID infection. There are, well, I see a lot of questions about this topic uh, on social media, on my wellness pages, on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I have a, a group on Facebook and people, you know, they respond to my newsletter and they wanted more information about this. So I said, okay, let's do a podcast on this. Um, so I decided to reach out to a researcher who is doing a lot of studies on COVID long haulers, and that is Dr. Charles Downs from the School of Nursing and Health Studies at the University of Miami. He is the Associate Dean for Research, and he's been working with a team of researchers across the country on long haul symptoms. So on today's podcast, he is going to talk about predictors of becoming a long hauler, any factors that increase your risk, uh, decrease your risk? Are there any associations between things like sex and weight um, and age? He is going to talk about the risk of getting long haul symptoms um, when you have an asymptomatic COVID infection, meaning you don't show symptoms, you don't really get very sick, but you have a positive COVID test. Um, or you know, or when you have symptoms. So what is the difference there in becoming a long hauler? And it's actually really interesting. Um, he's gonna discuss the most common long haul symptoms. He and his research team divided them um, up into clusters, which I think is, is a good way to look at them. He's gonna talk about how long those symptoms seem to last. Um, does vaccination help with these symptoms? A lot of people have heard that uh, in various news articles. Um, they ran with a lot of headlines, but there wasn't much, there, there wasn't, um, you know, controlled studies or um, when it came to that, you know, a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, and he's also going to talk about why these symptoms happen. What are the prevailing theories when it comes to why someone might get COVID long haul symptoms and somebody else might not? So that said, let's connect to Dr. Downs down in Florida. I see your name comes up as Chuck, but do you go by Charles or? So my friends call me Chuck. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I don't, it's too soon for me to be a friend. No, I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> um, well, okay. I'll... Charles and, I, and I began to start wondering if you know, <laughs> my mother yelling at me. Or okay. Something. Okay. Chuck Downs. Okay. Um, all right, let me, let me get my serious tone back on. Um, all right. Okay, guys, we're talking about 
COVID-19 long haulers. Obviously, this is a topic that um, is always in the news today. Um, so I want to thank um, Chuck Downs for joining me today. And um, so before we get into COVID-19 and long haulers, I guess, Chuck, do you mind just kind of saying who you are and um, the work you do? Sure. So um, my name is Chuck Downs. I am an associate professor at the University of Miami in the School of Nursing and Health Studies. Uh, and part of my work involves understanding sort of the biological basis and sort of evolution of symptoms. Um, and I have been doing some work in, in COVID long haul with a group across the United States. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, because you guys are all over the place. So yes, we are. Um, <laughs> Um, okay, so let's, uh, let's uh, jump kind of right into the paper that you guys wrote. Um, you helped author a study called COVID Symptoms, Symptom Clusters, and Predictors of Becoming a Long, a long Hauler. Um, so, and I, we hear that word a lot, I just said it, um, but for the purpose of kind of putting everybody on the same page, do you mind explaining what a long hauler is or how you guys defined it? for the purpose of your study? So I'll, I'll do both if that's okay. Yeah, um, that's fine. <laughs> so a COVID long hauler um, is in essence an individual who is still experiencing symptoms associated with COVID infection past a point in time where you would expect to have resolution from a viral sort of uh, infection. Typically that's like 21 days. Um, that we expect people when they become infected to have resolutions of their symptoms and kind of get back to normal. But, you know, COVID is a novel coronavirus. And I would sort of emphasize the word novel, meaning that, you know, it's, it's new to humans. So there's a lot that we don't understand about it and how it may interact with human biology. Mm. So for our study, um, we define long haulers as people who were having symptoms at day 60 plus. So 60 days after PCR confirmed uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. Okay, okay. Um, and so that kind of leads me right into the next question because um, like every study is kind of really dependent on the population that they look at. So can you describe um, the population that, that you guys looked at? Yeah, so we did, what, what we did was we used um, an available database that's available to, to uh, my collaborators in the University of California system. It's called uh, the Universe, University of California COVID um, Research Database, or UC Cords for short. And this has thousands, hundreds of thousands of medical records, basically from individuals who um, have had either uh, PCR positive uh, confirmation of SARS-CoV-2 infection or people who came for screening, I believe, for um, or COVID and were actually negative. So it's a, it's a large database containing, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals housed or people that live in California. Okay, and, and so they might've had symptoms and they might not have, right? Like, is that? Absolutely, so oh. there's a broad swath in there. There are individuals who are initially asymptomatic. There are people who would not have had a, a positive um, test and then people who had symptoms and, and also had a positive PCR test. Okay, and you didn't look at hospitalized patients, is that right? 
That's correct. We only looked at non-hospitalized patients. So these would have been people that are out in the community. And we did that specifically by, and, and by choice because most, um, a lot of the work in COVID long haul has been done with individuals who were initially hospitalized. So that sort of potentially could skew our understanding of what COVID right. long haul looks like. Sure. And what is even potentially more problematic is that only 1% of people with COVID, roughly 1%, are actually hospitalized. So that leaves the other 99% that are out there in the community. Uh, and they may also be experiencing sort of long-term sequela from this. So we wanted to look into that and, and do some investigating to see what we could find about COVID long haul in the community drilling adults. Um, yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. Um, because I think people do only kind of associate it with oh hospitalized patients. You you're, you're going to get this if, if and then if you don't go to the hospital, you'll you'll be okay. But that is not the case, as we'll find out. But um, so okay, you did a bunch of statistic statistical techniques, and um, obviously statistics is complicated, especially when you try to read it. Um, <laughs> so I guess like in um, now obviously there was some modeling involved here because you're trying to predict something. Um, so I guess like in a kind of easy to understand way, like super easy, if you can um, describe like the me methodology that you guys used. Sure. So I, I'm, this was done by the computer science and the computer science engineering people that are part of our team. So uh, I'm going to dumb it down to, to Chuck's version. Perfect. So that we can make it as Perfect. simple as possible so that we all understand it. So this is a machine learning technique, right? So it's, making the computer kind of do all the work. And the benefit to that is with this type of, of approach, you know, a computer, I won't say it's necessarily smarter than a human, but let's say it has more capabilities when it comes to holding information in place at one point in time, right? There are, we're limited in our ability to do that as humans, but computers don't necessarily have as much uh, of that limitation or constraint put upon them. Um, so what the computer will do is we will tell the computer uh, to go into the metal re medical records and look for specific features that define a case, and a case being people who are going, people who might have um, COVID uh, long haul. And that would be specifically, a case would be people who are PCR positive and are having symptoms at day 60 and beyond following their initial uh, diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 infection. The benefit of that is by using this machine learning technique, it also says, okay, this is what a case is, but at the same time, this is what a case is not. So there's an inherent built-in mm. sort of control group, if you will, right. right? So it's not, it's different than what people might ordinarily think of with sort of a randomized controlled trial where you're comparing, you know, people with symptoms versus without symptoms. So the machine learning sort of takes care of that automatically as part of, of you know, yeah. uh, inherent feature of, of of the method. And then the machine learning will actually develop sort of an algorithm, right? So mathematically determines an equation, if you will, for what a long hauler might look like and or what a long hauler actually looks like. And it will use various different features, right? Which a feature could be something like having dyspnea, could be age, could be some of those types of factors. Um, and that the presence of those either increase or decrease the likelihood of someone becoming a COVID long hauler. Okay, that was good. Um, so you guys divided these long hauler symptoms into five groups, basically, um, five clusters. 
Um, so can you talk a little bit about what those five groups were? I, and I, I noticed that like, it seemed like each group had two predominant symptoms. Um, it, so yeah, I guess like talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so one, one, of, the, one of the things that, uh, that we notice often in a disease, like if you think of, uh, of cancer or even heart disease and people who might have heart failures, that there are usually multiple symptoms that are co-occurring that occur presumably in response to the underlying biology that's going on with whatever disease process, right? So sure. uh, we sort of apply that same type of thinking um, here with COVID long haulers. And what we did was when an individual would come in with a chief complaint of whatever it is, maybe it's shortness of breath or you know they're having fatigue, we'd look for other co-occurring types of symptoms that they reported to their provider. And that uh, helped us sort of identify the major things that individuals were coming in with uh, and associated symptoms statistically that are associated with that particular uh, symptom. We found five different clusters. We've done some additional analyses and this kind of refined a little bit. Um, but basically we have one dominant feature and then several other, uh, or dominant symptom I should say, and several other co-occurring symptoms that may or may not be as you know, as uh, impactful Problem. on the yeah. patient or individual, yeah, not as problematic. So and, and by doing that, we were able and go ahead. You, What were they just, um, or, or they, even if you want to say just the first symptom, I guess. Um, so abdominal pain uh, is one issue along with fatigue and we, people who had shortness of breath or dyspnea and then cough is one. And we have chest pain right. with racing heart rate or tachycardia and then people with anxiety and low back pain tend to cluster together and then a headache with also sort of a racing heart or a tachycardia hmm. uh, so we saw these different clusters and I, I would say that i'll put a big sort of asterisk here with this and note that there's a big caveat with this and a limitation because of we use electronic health records so Anybody that's ever been in to see a provider knows that you go in and usually you say, I'm here because I'm having a problem X, Y, or Z. But at the same time, you may have other things that are co-occurring, but during the course of, of the visit, you don't always divulge all of that information. So it's not always recorded. So right, right. usually, and, and this is sort of the gold standard approach, if you will, for extracting data and that it's sort of provider documented, right? So yeah. it's in real time, patients coming in saying, I have heartburn or, or chest pain or whatever, and they're recording that information. So the focus tends to be on that major, you know, yeah. uh, is it driving symptom? And all the other ones may not necessarily uh, come through. Come We're on. doing some additional follow-up work with a larger group of people, um, and we are, we're seeing some relatively interesting findings in that, you know, symptoms don't appear to be uh, stable over time. So what we're seeing is that symptoms may occur in sort of waves and that the waves of symptoms that individuals are experiencing sort of vary or evolve over time as, you know, they're spending more time in this COVID long haul state. There are some features that appear to be cross or symptoms that appear to be kind of cross cutting across most people, mm. uh, fatigue being one issue that seems to be real dominant, um, a feature in this particular. Yeah. 
And the other is, you know, things like brain fog, where people have difficulty with cognitive functions that they may experience that for a period of time. And then a couple of days later, they're fine for a few days and then they're having it again. So those That's frustrating. Those, yeah, those two things seem to be sort of real prominent. And there are others uh, and that information should be coming out relatively soon for so um, is it another another study peer review and all that right? yeah <laughs> um, absolutely yeah i mean a lot of people are um talking about on, like on my facebook page and they're talking about brain fog and um i think it's great i that you you sort of just uh, separating you know fatigue is is one thing and then brain fog is like another thing um yeah and they may yeah. and they will likely occur in the same person right right uh, but the fatigue may be something that's much more of a day-to-day -day, mm. uh, symptom and the brain fog may be a little bit more waxing and waning. Uh, yeah. And it, it's sort of individual, individual based and it's, yeah. there's no like. Right. Do this and you'll get grouping. done. Yeah. yeah. Magic grouping for everybody. It just sort of, it varies. Take the supplement and it'll all be gone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, all right, so let's get into this, uh, the interesting question here. Um, in terms of what you learned from, from the study, um, what are some of the clear predictors, um, or I guess the statistically significant predictors of becoming long haulers and maybe starting with like the non-modifiable risk factors, um, age, sex, race, if there was anything that, that stood out there? Yeah, so the one thing for sure um, is, women are, are, are more likely than men. That, that's, that's pretty evident from, from our work. Um, yeah. Doesn't mean that if you're a man, you're without risk. It just means you're at less risk and women are at, at greater risk. As far as age, one of the interesting things that we found is that if we looked at, well, 70% of the cases that we identified were individuals that ranged in age from 30 to 79 with I would say the highest grouping being somewhere around the age of 50. Hmm. So, so that's interesting when you think about mortality, like, so it's like a different kind of range. What, you know, like you're at a higher risk of, of dying from COVID if you're older, but like, um, you know, like seventies, eighties, nineties, um, but fifties, you're at a higher risk of getting long hauler symptoms. Yeah. I would say anywhere in, you know, that, um, better. Yeah that middle age area of, of 40 to 60 is probably represents maybe 40% of the cases. Wow. So that's a, that's a large swath. And that I would also say that, you know, um, it's scary to think about, but children were not immune to this. Um, right. We did find, right. we did find several cases among kids. Um, yeah. Yeah. I said, was it like the average, was the average, maybe, am I told, I might be remembering a wrong study, but was like nine years old. Does, why is that sticking out in my head? Yes. So it, anywhere from nine to 13, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, because I should know that, but I haven't read it in a little. In, no, well, yeah. <laughs> in some, in some <laughs> I time, to be honest with you. No, yeah, but, I don't. <laughs> but um, yes. But kids are, kids can be um, affected by this. Um, okay. That's just, yeah, that's do, the take home point. They do appear to be less, less likely than you know, middle-aged adults, but I would say they're not, you know, they're not yeah, at zero yeah. risk. Yes. Um, what about um, any differences between race, among race? 
So uh, from the manuscript that you're probably referring to from the Med Archive, uh, we've done some additional analysis because we we wanted to get the paper kind of out there first. Yes. Uh, and we've done some additional analyses and we're, that is now under review with a journal. Um, but I can say that um, it's likely that no race is going to be specifically uh, unaffected by it, right? Okay. Um, that we did see an increase uh, in COVID long haul among individuals that were black, as well as some uh, Caucasians. Mm -hmm. But our number of uh, individuals that are black in the UC Cords data set was was relatively underrepresented, if you ask me. So I think we have mm. to we have to interpret that very cautiously. So I'm not sure that race is going to necessarily be a key factor, except that no race would be immune to it. Okay, that, that's great. Um, not great, but it's a good summary. Um, so we hear a lot about obesity. Um, it makes COVID-19 significantly worse. That's all the, all the data shows that it's a serious risk factor. Um, so in, in your study, um, was there a link between BMI and becoming a long hauler? And I, I know for everybody who's going to listen to this, that BMI is not a perfect measure. I, I always get those emails after I say BMI, like, I know, but sometimes it's good just kind of like on a pot, like a very cost-effective way to kind of gauge, I guess. It's a way to cost effectively standardize, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, understandable. So uh, we had a lot of missing data related to BMI because, you know, it's an electronic health record. And oftentimes the BMI that was available may have been from a year before the diagnosis. So a lot can change in a year with a person's weight, as you know. Sure, as you know. yeah. But of, and, and I would say we had a significant amount but we did go ahead because we know that this would be a question that people would be interested in. We did go ahead and look at BMI uh, and we reported sort of the mean BMI based upon on gender and age and predominantly found that people that were long haulers tended to be more overweight uh, than, than the people that were not long haulers. So again, I think this is also a limitation of the particular uh, Sure. application from the EHR because I suspect there may have been some some bias when individuals weights were recorded where someone clearly saw that the BMI was would be elevated they wanted to record that to make sure that you know person was given appropriate education for how to manage uh, BMI and such uh, so I, uh, I don't know with a hundred percent certainty that you know out yeah. of the sample BMI would be the strong predictor but I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't um, play a role or something. Like yeah, that. absolutely, absolutely. Primarily because of you know some of the prevailing theories that are out there about long haulers. So, right, yeah. right, right. Um, okay, so we've also heard a lot about asymptomatic infections with COVID nineteen, and you know, asymptomatic spread was um, sort of. I mean, almost unique to COVID-19 in, in terms which made it like kind of dangerous. Um, so a lot of people might think that not showing symptoms means you are at less of a risk of becoming a long hauler, or if you become a long hauler, your symptoms, your long haul symptoms might be less severe. So 
what, what did your study show in terms of being asymptomatic or showing no symptoms and becoming a long hauler? Yeah, so earlier when you would ask me some about the key predictors, um, we, we initially started with some of the non-modifiable things. Uh, right. and, and this would also technically be a non-modifiable factor, but being asymptomatic was the most important feature uh, in this algorithm for, for predicting becoming a long hauler. So roughly we found that um, a third of the people who became long haulers in the study were initially asymptomatic at the time of testing. Wow. Okay. Now they could have shown symptoms, I guess, after that, after they tested, right? Like, could they have, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, that could be completely possible. Okay. Um, Okay. But none of the, I would say none of the, none of the symptoms that we would have used for screening, you know, like fever, chill, cough, you know, difficulty uh, with okay. taste or smell, right. none of those types of things would have been recorded. That doesn't mean that they couldn't have had, you know, some heartburn, for example, right. or yeah. diarrhea or yeah. any of those other. Because there's some weird symptoms with COVID too, um, or in some people. Yes, oh. depending on, you know, mode and side transmission. So that's, I mean, that's a large number though. So one third of the people in your study who, um, who are long haulers had no initial symptoms. Correct. Wow. Um, it's alarming. Yeah. Yeah, it really you, is. You could extrapolate that to the, you know, to the U.S. population for known infections, just known infections. Um, right. Right. You know, significant number. Right. And yeah. There, there's evidence, you know, from previous studies that have been published to show that you know, COVID may have been circulating around in the United States, especially in California. And again, that's where this study is set as early as November of 2020. Yeah, I, that's so interesting. I, um, I remember I came down with something like, right, I mean, there was that January and people were still kind of like, don't worry about COVID, you know, when the flu's here, COVID's not that serious. Um, and I, w- I was like at like uh, the New York Public Library had this huge display, tons of people. And I came down with something that was so strange, like I, and, but it passed, but I always wonder like, I'm like, maybe that was COVID. I just didn't, it wasn't on my radar. So I, w- I didn't go and get tested. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I, I mean, that, I mean, people have to remember nothing, these timelines are, you know, they estimate to the best of their ability, but um, there's no absolutes. Um, Okay, so next question here. Are there any prevailing ideas on how long these long hauler symptoms last? When can someone say, oh, I'll, I'll get through this. I just have to wait till blah, blah, blah. Uh, unfortunately, th- we don't know the answer to that question. I do know anecdotally from the handful of people that I personally know that have uh, COVID long haul uh, that they are having symptoms and it's been at least a year wow. since they were initially diagnosed. Um, that's terrible. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, you know, some folks, and you probably saw this in the, in the news too, like, uh, people were saying they, they would get their COVID-19 vaccine and they would feel better. And, and obviously these are anecdotes. I've also heard the other anecdote where someone actually read that report, got their COVID-19 vaccine and was like, well, I didn't feel better. Um, do you know, do you have any ideas, thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I'm I'm kind of unclear on on what would be going on there. I, I don't know if it's you know if it's some little immune boost that they get from the vaccine that makes them feel better. Honestly, yeah. it's really yeah. unclear. And I've heard I just like you, I've heard the same sort of anecdotal information kind of going both ways. Yeah, yeah. And I thought too, if there, it's hard to, uh, with anecdotes to rule out kind of like not just the placebo effect, but also the nocebo effect. Like if you're more of like a negative person, I guess, or, you know, this won't work for me or, but this will work for me. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously people are feeling actual symptoms, um, but you know, like the power of that effect, I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I have to talk about that carefully because I don't want—I don't want to offend anybody. I'm not—that's not what I'm trying to do. Um, so, in terms of um, the mechanism of action, um, you know, is this—are there any prevailing theories? Like, is this the immune system? Um, something with, um, you know, autoantibodies, or is this um, something specific to the virus? Uh, any ideas? Yeah, so there, you know, you kind of hit on two of the major prevailing theories. Um, the first being that, you know, this virus, because it's novel, kind of caused some aberrant immune system sort of function that leads to this long-term sort of sequela. That's one prevailing theory. The other is, you know, the presence of viral reservoirs in, in parts of the body that may be leading to some of the symptoms. Um, mm. That has a uh, to my knowledge, I haven't seen anything looking at viral reservoirs uh, no. yet, but that's quite possible or potential. Yeah, say. that's And then the third would be, you know, because this is a novel sort of coronavirus and, you know, our, our immune system's not used to it, there's some potential for, you know, this being generating autoantibodies that might be causing some of the problems. Those are the sort of the three sort of predominant theories at this point in time. And um, for any of your listeners that might actually be suffering from this post-COVID syndrome or, yeah. you know, being a long hauler, uh, know that the NIH has invested a large amount of money recently, uh, $1.15 billion, um, into studies trying to understand exactly what's going on here uh, and be able to develop some way to treat this particular phenomenon. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we are working on it. We're working on it. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's so hard to ask people to be patient, you know, when they're hurting and stuff, but um, it, it's, you're just, you're you're just, it's like so new, you know, the virus keeps showing you something new every day. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, even with the variants, I always tell people like, just be patient. Like the virus is clever. It moves fast. Like people, people in public health aren't out to get you. They're just, <laughs> they're just absolutely not. They're not. They're, yeah. they're there to help you. Yeah. But yeah. Something that's really kind of, you know, in essence, fighting for its own survival. Right. By right. mutating, trying to make a, a way for it to have a better connection with the host so that it can replicate and live longer. Yeah. I mean, it is a truly just really dangerous, interesting virus all at once. Um, but I, and I hope, I hope we all, we get through it. I think. I think we will. Um, and I just wanted to mention, you know, cause like you guys talked about anxiety, but then I, and you probably read that other report, but this was different. I think this is different than long haulers. I think we're like one third of people who recovered from COVID were getting um, diagnosed with um, like a psychiatric uh, disorder or like um, that was separate, right? I don't know if you saw that. I have, I have seen that. And we are actually looking, that's interesting you should mention that. 
So we are looking and almost ready, I think, to send, send something out for review, oh. looking specifically at sort of the psychiatric consequences, um, like with prescribers, as a get, an, get, get a good idea of what people have done in, for their patients in sort of response to this COVID situation. And anxiety would be one of, one of the things that we were looking at, as well as increase or decrease in the number of, of mental health diagnoses that may have been made. Um, so we have, we're actually meeting later today to talk a little bit more about that, uh, about, about the data so we can get this paper out. So, oh, well, it, look at that. <laughs> it's forthcoming, uh, as well as we've got some, we got other papers in the works about. Yeah, that was my last question. And I'm like, because it sounds like lots of people don't have, they're like, well, not yet. And you're like, like, I have three coming out or four. I'm like, okay, well, great. <laughs> yeah. So our, our team um, really is kind of unique. We're, we're um, housed in Miami, as well as University of California, Irvine, Mayo Clinic. Indiana University and at UCLA. And uh, the group of us, everybody kinds of brings an, uh, a given expertise, but some of us also have access to a large group yeah. of, of COVID survivors through Survivor Core and a variety of other um, sort of rich data sets that we can get access to. So we're actively working to answer a lot of these types of questions as best we can with the limitations of the data that we have That's available. That's amazing. Um, well, definitely keep me in the, in the loop and I have to tell you, this was very helpful um, to me, and I'm sure my listeners, um, when I when I put it up on the podcast, they're so interested in this, um, and um, just a lot. I mean, a lot of people have these symptoms, and they're just you know really scared and just want to know more about it. So, thank you so much for your time and the work you're doing, and definitely um, you know shoot me links to any of those papers um, so I you know can share them with uh, my readers and listeners too. Absolutely, be glad to do so. Thank you, Chuck, and enjoy uh, your weekend there in in Miami. I don't know how COVID is in Miami right now. I mean, Flo Florida always gets <laughs> mixed reviews. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Florida a mixed review as well. Um, <laughs> they don't really mention it or dis discuss it, uh, and we do have sort of the multiple variants kind of floating around in the area. Yeah, but we're also like vaccinating people left right and sideways so I, i'm hoping that yeah. things will get get to be nice and stable and very little COVID in the area yeah so. that's right you guys have the the or uh, the p1 variant is i are you this the state that has the highest of that right now uh i believe that is correct yeah i have to go i, I know it's florida so yes yes <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyways, thanks again. And, um, please stay in touch, uh, and, and, and enjoy, yeah. Enjoy your weekend down there. Absolutely. And thank you for inviting me. Sure thing, Chuck. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, I hope you subscribe to the podcast, check out some of the other episodes. Um, some are on COVID, many aren't, uh, but, um, I think they're all interesting. Um, some of the recordings are better than others. <laughs> you learn as you go when you do a podcast. Um, anyhow, if you have any comments, you can reach me. Um, my social media links are in the podcast description, as is my blog. And, um, I think my email address is there too. Um, hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and, um, take care of each other, take care of yourself and 
enjoy um, the rest of your day, no matter what time it is. Bye-bye.